0: File twenty three of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume. Volume one. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book one, Part three, Section eight, of the Causes of Belief. Having thus explained the nature of belief, and shewn that it consists in a lively idea related to a present impression, let us now proceed to examine from what principles it is derived, and what bestows the vivacity on the idea. I would willingly establish it as a general maxim in the science of human nature, that when any impression becomes present to us, it not only transports the mind to such ideas as are related to it, but likewise communicates to them a share of its force and vivacity. All the operations of the mind depend in a great measure on its disposition when it performs them, and according as the spirits are more or less elevated, and the attention more or less fixed, the action will always have more or less vigour and vivacity. When, therefore, any object is presented, which elevates and enlivens the thought, every action to which the mind applies itself, will be more strong and vivid, as long as that disposition continues. Now, it is evident the continuance of the disposition depends entirely on the objects about which the mind is employed, and that any new object naturally gives a new direction to the spirits, and changes the disposition, as on the contrary, when the mind fixes constantly on the same object, or passes easily and insensibly along related objects, the disposition has a much longer duration. Hence it happens that when the mind is once enlivened by a present impression, it proceeds to form a more lively idea of the related objects by a natural transition of the disposition from the one to the other. The change of the objects is so easy that the mind is scarce sensible of it but applies itself to the conception of the related idea, with all the force and vivacity it acquired from the present impression. If in considering the nature of relation, and that facility of transition which is essential to it, we can satisfy ourselves concerning the reality of this phenomenon, it is well. I must confess I place my chief confidence in experience to prove so material a principle. We may therefore observe, as the first experiment to our present purpose, that upon the appearance of the picture of an absent friend, our idea of him is evidently enlivened by the resemblance, and that every passion which that idea occasions, whether of joy, or sorrow, acquires new force and vigour. In producing this effect, there concur both a relation and a present impression. Where the picture bears him no resemblance, or at least was not intended for him, it never so much as conveys our thought to him. And where it is absent, as well as the person, though the mind may pass from the thought of the one to that of the other it feels its idea to be rather weakened than enlivened by that transition we take a pleasure in viewing the picture of a friend when it is set before us but when it is removed rather choose to consider him directly than by reflection in an image which is equally distant and obscure The ceremonies of the Roman Catholic religion may be considered as experiments of the same nature. The devotees of that strange superstition usually plead in excuse of the mummeries with which they are upbraided, that they feel the good effect of those external motions and postures and actions in enlivening their devotion and quickening their fervour, which otherwise would decay away if directed entirely to distant and immaterial objects we shadow out the objects of our faith say they in sensible types and images and render them more present to us by the immediate presence of these types than it is possible for us to do merely by an intellectual view and contemplation Sensible objects have always a greater influence on the fancy than any other, and this influence they readily convey to those ideas to which they are related, and which they resemble. I shall only infer from these practices, and this reasoning, that the effect of resemblance in enlivening the idea is very common and as in every case a resemblance and a present impression must concur we are abundantly supplied with experiments to prove the reality of the foregoing principle we may add force to these experiments by others of a different kind in considering the effects of contiguity as well as of resemblance it is certain that distance diminishes the force of every idea, and that upon our approach to any object, though it does not discover itself to our senses, it operates upon the mind with an influence that imitates an immediate impression. The thinking on any object readily transports the mind to what is contiguous but it is only the actual presence of an object that transports it with a superior vivacity. When I am a few miles from home, whatever relates to it touches me more nearly than when I am two hundred leagues distant, though even at that distance the reflecting on any thing in the neighbourhood of my friends and family naturally produces an idea of them. But, as in this latter case both the objects of the mind are ideas, notwithstanding there is an easy transition betwixt them, that transition alone is not able to give a superior vivacity to any of the ideas for want of some immediate impression. Footnote 6 Reader's Note The Latin quotation from Cicero de Finibus, Book V, is not read here, because it is translated to English immediately following. End of footnote 6 Reader's note The text's translation of Cicero Should I, he said, attribute to instinct or to some kind of illusion, the fact that when we see those places in which we are told notable men spent much of their time, we are more powerfully affected than when we hear of the exploits of the men themselves, or read something written. This is just what is happening to me now, for I am reminded of Plato, who, we are told, was the first to make a practice of holding discussions here. Those gardens of his near-by do not merely put me in mind of him. They seem to set the man himself before my very eyes. Speusippus was here, so was Xenocrates, so was his pupil Polemo, and that very seat which we may view was his. Then again, when I looked at our Senate-house, I mean the old building of Hostilius, not this new one, when it was enlarged it diminished in my estimation. I used to think of Scipio, Cato, Laelius, and in particular of my own grandfather. Such is the power of places to evoke associations, so it is with good reason that they are used as a basis for memory training. READERS NOTE END OF THE TEXT'S TRANSLATION OF CICERO No one can doubt but causation has the same influence as the other two relations, of resemblance and contiguity. Superstitious people are fond of the relics of saints and holy men for the same reason that they seek after types and images, in order to enliven their devotion, and give them a more intimate and strong conception of those exemplary lives which they desire to imitate. Now it is evident one of the best relics a devotee could procure would be the handiwork of a saint. And if his clothes and furniture are ever to be considered in this light, it is because they were once at his disposal and were moved and effected by him in which respect they are to be considered as imperfect effects and as connected with him by a shorter chain of consequences than any of those from which we learn the reality of his existence this phenomenon clearly proves that a present impression with a relation of causation may enliven any idea and consequently produce belief or assent, according to the precedent definition of it. But why need we seek for other arguments to prove that a present impression, with a relation or transition of the fancy, may enliven any idea, when this very instance of our reasonings, from cause and effect, will alone suffice to that purpose? It is certain we must have an idea of every matter of fact which we believe. It is certain that this idea arises only from a relation to a present impression. It is certain that the belief super-adds nothing to the idea, but only changes our manner of conceiving it, and renders it more strong and lively. The present conclusion concerning the influence of relation is the immediate consequence of all these steps, and every step appears to me sure and infallible. There enters nothing into this operation of the mind, but a present impression, a lively idea, and a relation or association in the fancy betwixt the impression and idea so that there can be no suspicion of mistake. In order to put this whole affair in a fuller light, let us consider it as a question in natural philosophy, which we must determine by experience and observation. I suppose there is an object presented, from which I draw a certain conclusion, and form to myself ideas, which I am said to believe or assent to. Here it is evident that however that object which is present to my senses, and that other, whose existence I infer by reasoning, may be thought to influence each other by their particular powers or qualities. Yet as the phenomenon of belief, which we at present examine, is merely internal, these powers and qualities, being entirely unknown, can have no hand in producing it. It is the present impression which is to be considered as the true and real cause of the idea, and of the belief which attends it. We must therefore endeavour to discover by experiments the particular qualities by which it is enabled to produce so extraordinary an effect. First, then, I observe that the present impression has not this effect, by its own proper power and efficacy, and when considered alone as a single perception limited to the present moment. I find that an impression from which on its first appearance I can draw no conclusion, may afterwards become the foundation of belief, when I have had experience of its usual consequences. We must in every case have observed the same impression in past instances, and have found it to be constantly conjoined with some other impression. This is confirmed by such a multitude of experiments, that it admits not of the smallest doubt. From a second observation, I conclude that the belief which attends the present impression, and is produced by a number of past impressions and conjunctions, that this belief, I say, arises immediately, without any new operation of the reason or imagination. Of this I can be certain, because I never am conscious of any such operation, and find nothing in the subject on which it can be founded. Now as we call everything custom which proceeds from a past repetition without any new reasoning or conclusion, we may establish it as a certain truth, that all the belief which follows upon any present impression is derived solely from that origin. When we are accustomed to see two impressions conjoined together, the appearance or idea of the one immediately carries us to the idea of the other. Being fully satisfied on this head, I make a third set of experiments in order to know whether anything be requisite beside the customary transition towards the production of this phenomenon of belief. I therefore change the first impression into an idea and observe that though the customary transition to the correlative idea still remains yet there is in reality no belief nor persuasion a present impression then is absolutely requisite to this whole operation and when after this i compare an impression with an idea and find that their only difference consists in their different degrees of force and vivacity, I conclude, upon the whole, that belief is a more vivid and intense conception of an idea, proceeding from its relation to a present impression. Thus all probable reasoning is nothing but a species of sensation, it is not solely in poetry and music we must follow our taste and sentiment but likewise in philosophy when i am convinced of any principle it is only an idea which strikes more strongly upon me when i give the preference to one set of arguments above another i do nothing but decide from my feeling concerning the superiority of their influence objects have no discoverable connexion together nor is it from any other principle but custom operating upon the imagination that we can draw any inference from the appearance of one to the existence of another it will here be worth our observation that the past experience on which all our judgments concerning cause and effect depend may operate on our mind in such an insensible manner as never to be taken notice of, and may even in some measure be unknown to us. A person who stops short in his journey upon meeting a river in his way, foresees the consequences of his proceeding forward and his knowledge of these consequences is conveyed to him by past experience which informs him of such certain conjunctions of causes and effects. But can we think that on this occasion he reflects on any past experience, and calls to remembrance instances that he has seen or heard of in order to discover the effects of water on animal bodies? No, surely this is not the method in which he proceeds in his reasoning. The idea of sinking is so closely connected with that of water, and the idea of suffocating with that of sinking, that the mind makes the transition without the assistance of the memory. The custom operates before we have time for reflection the objects seem so inseparable that we interpose not a moment's delay in passing from the one to the other but as this transition proceeds from experience and not from any primary connexion betwixt the ideas we must necessarily acknowledge that experience may produce a belief and a judgment of causes and effects, by a secret operation, and without being once thought of. This removes all pretext, if there yet remains any, for asserting that the mind is convinced by reasoning of that principle that instances of which we have no experience must necessarily resemble those of which we have for we here find that the understanding or imagination can draw inferences from past experience without reflecting on it much more without forming any principle concerning it or reasoning upon that principle in general we may observe that in all the most established and uniform conjunctions of causes and effects such as those of gravity impulse, solidity, etc., the mind never carries its view expressly to consider any past experience, though in other associations of objects, which are more rare and unusual, it may assist the custom and transition of ideas by this reflection. Nay, we find in some cases that the reflection produces the belief without the custom, or more properly speaking, that the reflection produces the custom in an oblique and artificial manner. I explain myself. It is certain that not only in philosophy, but even in common life, we may attain the knowledge of a particular cause merely by one experiment, provided it be made with judgment and after a careful removal of all foreign and superfluous circumstances now as after one experiment of this kind the mind upon the appearance either of the cause or the effect can draw an inference concerning the existence of its correlative and as a habit can never be acquired merely by one instance it may be thought that belief cannot in this case be esteemed the effect of custom. But this difficulty will vanish if we consider that though we are here supposed to have had only one experiment of a particular effect, yet we have many millions to convince us of this principle, that like objects placed in like circumstances will always produce like effects, and, as this principle has established itself by a sufficient custom, it bestows an evidence and firmness on any opinion to which it can be applied. The connection of the ideas is not habitual after one experiment. But this connection is comprehended under another principle that is habitual, which brings us back to our hypothesis in all cases we transfer our experience to instances of which we have no experience either expressly or tacitly either directly or indirectly i must not conclude this subject without observing that it is very difficult to talk of the operations of the mind with perfect propriety and exactness because common language has seldom made any very nice distinctions among them but has generally called by the same term all such as nearly resemble each other and as this is a source almost inevitable of obscurity and confusion in the author so it may frequently give rise to doubts and objections in the reader which otherwise he would never have dreamed of Thus, my general position, that an opinion or belief is nothing but a strong and lively idea derived from a present impression related to it, may be liable to the following objection, by reason of a little ambiguity in those words strong and lively. It may be said, that not only an impression may give rise to reasoning, but that an idea may also have the same influence, especially upon my principle that all our ideas are derived from correspondent impressions. For suppose I form at present an idea of which I have forgot the correspondent impression. I am able to conclude from this idea that such an impression did once exist and as this conclusion is attended with belief it may be asked from whence are the qualities of force and vivacity derived which constitute this belief and to this i answer very readily from the present idea for as this idea is not here considered as the representation of any absent object but as a real perception in the mind of which we are intimately conscious it must be able to bestow on whatever is related to it the same quality call it firmness or solidity or force or vivacity with which the mind reflects upon it and is assured of its present existence the idea here supplies the place of an impression and is entirely the same, so far as regards our present purpose. Upon the same principles, we need not be surprised to hear of the remembrance of an idea, that is, of the idea of an idea, and of its force and vivacity superior to the loose conceptions of the imagination in thinking of our past thoughts we not only delineate out the objects of which we were thinking but also conceive the action of the mind in the meditation that certain je ne sais quoi of which it is impossible to give any definition or description but which every one sufficiently understands When the memory offers an idea of this, and represents it as past, it is easily conceived how that idea may have more vigour and firmness than when we think of a past thought of which we have no remembrance. After this any one will understand how we may form the idea of an impression and of an idea, and how we may believe the existence of an impression and of an idea. End of file 23.